0: So tonight, I'm going to talk about the Bodhisattva, the archetype, the path, the fruition, and what it means out in the world. I feel really lucky to talk about this topic. We all sort of pick our topics, but um, but I I. It's my favorite topic. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. It's my favorite thing inside Buddhism, in some sense. The bodhisattva, as Jack mentioned days ago, is the awakened being, or a being whose life is dedicated to awakening for the sake of all beings. So the word bodhi just means awake, and sattva is being, and so when you put it together, it's awakened being. But the connotations are much deeper than just awakened being. So when I first started my practice, I was um, working with teachers in the Tibetan tradition. and these two, And in the Tibetan tradition, it's very rooted in this concept of the bodhisattva vow and what the bodhisattva is. And I soon became involved with vipassana practice, and I saw that in vipassana practice, this wasn't so much evident. It wasn't I, I couldn't really find the bodhisattva vow in it, and I sort of wondered, oh, can I practice sort of, kind of, in another tradition with my vipassana? Can I can I incorporate this in? And so what I began to do was actually make an effort to. Um, try to understand it, to understand what it meant historically, what it meant for the culture and for contemporary times. And what I saw was that in early Buddhism, there was the idea in, in, um, in, in early Buddhism of the Bodhisatta. Okay? So Bodhisatta is, in, is the same thing in light, awakened being. But what it referred to was the Buddha's um, many lifetimes before he came, became the Buddha. So at one point, eons and eons and eons ago, there was a young monk named Sumedo, who took a vow to become completely, fully enlightened and that he would do it and appear in a world system. You have to understand the Buddhist cosmology is very vast. He would appear in a world system that had never seen a Buddha before. And so he made this vow and then eons passed, and over the eons, he would be, he, he was reborn and reborn again, and each time he was reborn in as a different animal or human who was working his or her way through to enlightenment. And frequently he was reborn as an animal, and I sort of looked around to see if I could find an elephant story about the Buddha, but I didn't find one. So you just, there is one? Okay, I missed it. <laughs> Uh, lots of monkey stories, however. <laughs> so at these in these times when he was reborn as a tiger or as a parrot or as a as an elephant, I guess, he would um, he would demonstrate qualities of virtue, of patience, or determination, or selflessness, or just some incredible quality. And then this allowed him to um, be moving in this direction of Buddhahood, of becoming of being a bodhisatta in search of Buddhahood. So this was actually um, this idea of becoming born a Buddha existed in early Buddhism, and it existed after the Buddha's death. There was uh, there were what's known as eighteen schools of Buddhism developed. Okay. So everybody had an idea of what the Buddha said. This was many hundred years later, and they all had an idea, and they were kind of fighting about it, and then new schools formed, and you had all these schools. And they all carried the same idea of this bodhisattva, of this aspiration to become a Buddha. And that one would do it through merit, and through resolve and determination, and working hard and developing these qualities, these virtues. Now the form of Buddhism that comes here today tended to not emphasize that so much. And what we have is this ideal of what's called an arhat. And an arhat is this fully enlightened being who's escaped the rounds of birth and rebirth and what we call samsara. And has um, reached complete awakening in this lifetime. And so what you then get is, all, is these other Buddhists who say, they're, they're very selfish, you know, because our school is, very, is, is about um, this development of compassion over time and wanting to save countless beings, whereas your school is, very, is all about getting yourself out of samsara. Mm-hmm. And this is really, I think, a really wrong view. It's a wrong understanding, because in the arhat, in this view is this tremendous compassion, and the Buddha looked at these um, countless arhats and said, go out and teach and benefit the world. Go out in compassion and benefit the world. So one of the developments is the Mahayana, okay? That's the, what's known as the second turning of the wheel. So you had this early Buddhism and then in Mahayana, this compassion and the bodhisattva became really, really important. And so, what you see is this whole pantheon of deities who were called bodhisattvas. Okay, so they were people, people, they were deities like Kuan Yin, okay, who we all know about, who's this incredible female deity who's also a translation of her name is one who hears the cries of the world. Okay, she had so much compassion that she knew how to act and when to act and where. Or Mandrushri, who wielded a sword, and the sword was the sword of wisdom, and he could cut through anything and see clearly in a moment. And so these were archetypes, these bodhisattvas, these great beings of compassion who were dedicated to the world. And that became very important in this kind of Buddhism. There also became this notion that arose about, and this is probably how most of us hear about the Bodhisattva these days, is someone who sticks around and doesn't leave the cycle of birth and death and rebirth, but sticks around to help all beings become enlightened. So, it's kind of an amazing, amazing idea that I'm, not gonna, I'm so altruistic that I'm not going to save my own butt. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay around for everybody else and help them. So today, when you go to a Zen temple, for instance, everybody chants the Bodhisattva chant, which says, Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. Sound easy? It's intentionally paradoxical. You're not really supposed to be able to do it. How can if delusions are inexhaustible, how can you end them? It's impossible but it's about turning the mind towards this paradox and seeing what opens up as we think of, of attaining the inconceivable. And with this vow, as I said, there's this idea we stick around and we help out and we, wor- and we, we refrain from our own liberation in order to be with all these beings and help them through the muck of samsara, so here's a poem that someone wrote named Laura Fargus. And, the, and also, you may not know who a bodhisattva is. Bodhisattvas can be hiding out, right, because they're here somewhere. There might be lots of bodhisattvas in the room. We don't know. But in this, in this idea, they're, um, they're just they're sticking around and working and um, awakening with all beings. This poem is called Quan Yin. Of the many Buddhas, I love best the girl who will not leave the cycle of pain before anyone else. She's at the brink of never being heard again, but pauses to say, all of us, every blade of grass. She chooses to live in the tumble of souls through time. Perhaps she sees spring in every country, talks quietly with farm women while helping to lay seed. Our hearts are a storm she trembles at. I picture her leaning on a tree or humming or joining a volleyball game on Santa Monica Beach. Her skin shines with sweat. The others may not know how to notice what she does to them. She's not a fish or a bee. It's not pity or thirst. She should go. She could go, but here she is. So, of course, this idea of sticking around and helping everyone is, a little, is also paradoxical because... If everybody's waiting for everybody else to reach enlightenment, then nobody's going to get enlightened, right? So it's, again, it's all, you gotta, I'm putting this in the context of um, sort of the larger picture of all this. Now in the Tibetan tradition, the concept of the bodhisattva is so important it's really considered a key to, um, to the way the practice, the practice manifests. It's an underlying basis of the tradition, and it really fuels the fire of liberation. Okay, So if you take this vow, it's, it's like you light a fire under yourself, and you just want to go really fast and get enlightened so you can benefit all beings as much as possible, as soon as possible. And often in this tradition, you'll take vows in the form of in a ceremony. You'll do it. Um, you'll you'll commit to this vow, and you have to say it every day. And if you don't say it, you're in big trouble. You know, so it's very it's very very serious. And some of these vows manifest like this, and these are pretty intense. Ready? Right? May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road, for those who wish to cross the river. May I be a boat a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall, a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed. For all who need a, need a servant, may I be a slave. And it kind of goes on and on and on, right? If you read this, this is from Shantideva, who wrote The Bodhisattva's Guide to Life. He was a 7th century mystic and, um, and teacher. And he he, you know, you read this book, and it's like, may I cut off my arms for you? May I, may I do everything for you? It, it's, it's very intense. And once in a while, I think, is it bodhisattva or codependent? You know, <laughs> you kind of wonder. But, but, um, anyways, um, I don't take it. You don't, I, I don't take it so literally. When I first heard this manifestation of the bodhisattva vow, I was. Um, Hearing it when the Dalai Lama was giving teachings of it in Bodhgaya a number of years ago. And I was listening to it and I was thinking, wow, this is really intense. How could I possibly ever aspire to something like this? Being cutting off my limbs as an act of generosity and altruism. And I suddenly realized that it was really it was really a love poem. You know, it was a poem to this aspiration to awaken. It was a manifestation in that anyone's heart could turn in this direction of awakening. That our practice can really be about the awakening for all beings if we wish. And is it are we awakening with all beings? Are we awakening after all beings? Are we awakening before all beings? I, you know, I don't think it matters so much as the deeper intention, this loving, this vast love that comes up out of us, this love for the world, this thing that takes the practice from the solely about getting out of my stuff and into the realm of humanity, in a sense. So a being dedicated to waking up for the sake of all beings. And to say this is important, this is not for everyone. Okay? Not everybody feels compelled by this vision, and that's fine. And that may be because you're just starting out on your practice and all you can do is notice your breath, and that's about it, right? Or just being with pain feels like it's enough. And, or sometimes people feel, actually, my practice is to get out of suffering. I'm doing really important work here for my own freedom. And I don't see that as selfish, and I don't even see it as contradictory. It's just a way of people expressing their practice. So the Bodhisattva vow is very tied up with this issue of intention. And intention is so important in the Buddhist teachings. I think of having taking a vow, like a bodhisattva vow, as a vow that guides me in my life. It's a vow that guides me in my way, on my path, on my practice, but even for life decisions. So if I know that I'm living a life for the sake of all beings, it's really, it's right out there. It's kind of like the North Star. You know, and then I get a little lost, and I go that way, and I go that way, and then I say, oh, what is your deepest vow in your life? What's the most important thing to you? And I remember, ah, benefiting all beings. And then I kind of know which direction to go, even if I've gone way off. It also can get more microcosmic or small, or I'm sorry, microscopic or smaller. So the issue of intention, again, is so important. When we can begin, as you're seeing, as you practice, that we develop an ability to see our motivation more and more clearly. So we see why we go for seconds. Or we see that there is an intention behind when we go into an interview and we really want to try to impress our teachers, God knows why. But anyway, you go in with that feeling and, oh, that's a motivation that I can observe. I don't have to take it so seriously or take it too personally. The Tibetans say, everything rests on the tip of motivation. It's very significant. And so we can look at our intentions behind our actions, whether they're the vast intentions for our life or for our practice, or they could be small and subtle intentions. But one thing to keep in mind is, most of the time, our intentions are mixed. Now, we think we want to do something out of the complete goodness of our heart, but actually we're doing it because we want people to notice us. Or we think we're doing something because we're, we're taking care of our family because we care so deeply about them, but also we're not sure what we're really going to do otherwise. or something. You know, Our motivations are always mixed. And that's something that as you practice, or as I practice, I've found that I can be more and more accepting about myself. But what I do through the practice is look more clearly and closely at who I am and what what makes me tick, what makes me do what I do. And then there's a purification process that happens just on its own, seeing it clearly, and sometimes the more wholesome motivations kind of float to the top. And I'm compassionate with myself when my (laughs) motivations are not wholesome. So with the bodhisattva... The bodhisattva, the um, intention is related to what's called bodhicitta. And bodhi, again, is this term awakening, and chitta is heart or mind. And as I think many of you know, in a lot of Asian cultures, there's not a distinguishing between heart and mind. So when you say, I know, when I've seen people in Thailand say, I know that, and point to their hearts. I know it. I feel what you're feeling. It's interesting. So, it's an aspiration for awakening. It's the, awakened, the aspiration for the awakened heart and mind. It's to have a mind as limitless as the sky. And it includes both the aspiration and also the engagement. So someone was asking, oh, what about just, do we, do we just feel like we want to do something good, or do we actually act? Well, bodhicitta has both the aspiration and the intention to act in it. And bodhicitta is very, very difficult. Just so you know, it's not something that, oh, okay, I just feel like I want to help people. It's not like that. There's, usually we distinguish between relative and absolute bodhicitta. So relative bodhicitta is this sense of of sort of the altruism a natural atru- altruism that comes in our lives and in our heart. Absolute bodhicitta is bodhicitta grounded in emptiness. It's bodhicitta that sees the vastness of time and space that is an awakened kind of bodhicitta that we can just barely touch in and the reason i say that is because here's a quote from the dalai lama he says i cannot pretend to i cannot pretend to practice bodhicitta but deep inside me i realize how valuable and beneficial it is that's all so if the, if the Dalai Lama says he can't even pretend to practice bodhicitta, what are we doing, right? <laughs> but actually, he's very modest, as we all know. And I'm sure he has bodhicitta arising in him quite frequently. And we can tap into that, to that taste of wanting to be awake. Just all of these things that I'm talking about with this vow, this desire for this vow, this desire for our practice to be of benefit, of service to the world to awaken with all beings together. This is this bodhicitta. This is from an early text about bodhicitta. One who understands the nature of the bodhi- of bodhicitta sees everything with a loving heart. For love is the essence of the bodhicitta. All bodhisattvas find their raison d'etre in this great loving heart. So in some ways, maybe it's very simple. It's that movement of our heart towards love, awakening out of love, helping beings not because you think you should, but because you really just are moved by love. What I do with bodhicitta is I don't pretend that bodhicitta is arising, but I actually do vows, or I set my intention for bodhicitta to arise. So I set my intention to have an intention, essentially. So I say a a traditional phrase, which is, May the precious bodhicitta, or awakened heart and mind, may it arise where it has not arisen where it has arisen may it not decrease but increase further and further and I say that pretty much every morning that I remember may it arise where it has not arisen and I get the sense sometimes of like a field of flowers just popping up may this bodhicitta, this awakening heart and mind arise where it's not arisen where it has arisen may it just grow and grow and grow So it's important for each of us to find our own relationship to the bodhisattva and the bodhisattva vow and to really make it your own. And that I feel like it's always constantly evolving. You know, it could start as one thing and then later on you're involved in a tradition and you take more vows or, and it becomes something that you're very seriously involved with or it takes different phrases and different prayers. I mean, I've said different things throughout... Um, my history with practice that opened me to the Bodhisattva vow. And sometimes I'll just say something really simple like, may I practice so that I can be equipped to serve? Or may all beings be happy? Even that is an expression of bodhicitta, the metta. They're very closely linked. So for the Bodhisattva... For the bodhisattva, the training ground is the cushion. It's our practice. That's how we become better at being a bodhisattva, if we decide we want to be a bodhisattva. And what happens on the cushion? On the cushion, virtue is developed. We become more patient. Haven't you gotten more patient since you've been here? This is an extremely important quality and this perfection, this virtue of a bodhisattva. We become more determined. We make effort. This effort is a quality of the bodhisattva. We become more compassionate. We become more equanimous. All of these qualities, because we're doing this practice, we're sitting here getting ourselves down to the cushion again and again, coming back to the breath, to the direct experience again and again. And I just see it in all of you. It's really been amazing to see the shift that's happened over these weeks and seeing come in with these beautiful qualities of heart and mind people coming in today and saying, "Well, nothing much is really happening, but actually I'm really okay with that." You no, know, that's equanimity. Or people saying, you know, for the first couple of days I just hated myself, but now actually I'm kind of feeling a lot of compassion for the fact that I hate myself. <laughs> that's compassion. Or the person who said they were, who showed their determination because they were their mind was feeling so open and spacious, and everything felt so deeply connected. And then this really attractive person came by, and that was the end of it. <laughs> and then they just noticed oh, there we are attraction, greed, wanting. Okay, back, and then back right into the spacious mind. That's equanimity, that's determination. These qualities, they're coming into us and through us because we're working at it. This is what we're trying to develop here. And call it the qualities of the Bodhisattva or call it qualities of a healthy heart, body, mind. But this is our work here on the cushion. So when we look at these times, when we think about the difficulties of being alive in these times with tremendous poverty and fear and inequality and you know you're all about to go back right into the cold cruel world (laughs) not like spirit rock and it can be quite daunting and what I love about the bodhisattva is that we can all become bodhisattvas if our heart is drawn there and I tend to I tend to think of the bodhisattva at times, or one way I think of the bodhisattva, is as an archetype for an activist. I see it as bringing together the aspiration for inner awakening with outer awakening. It it shows us that our own liberation is intimately connected with what's going on in the world they're not separate. And that our path of acting in the world can also be a path of waking up. So I really see the path of the Bodhisattva as this very external path in some way, although some people interpret it very internally. And so as I gave you that whole framework of different kinds of ways of interpreting the Bodhisattva, this is another way that those of us in the kind of engaged Buddhist movement are very inspired by. So I think about those bodhisattvas that we all know like Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa or Gandhi or Nelson Mandela and then I think, oh great, what about us? We're not going to be like that, or could we? Maybe we could. But what I, I prefer is what I call the ordinary bodhisattva. The bodhisattva who's just one of us who's working really hard to bring to fruition one's practice to wake up in the world for the sake of beings and is working at it. I see service and Dharma as so deeply intertwined. When I first started practicing, I was, this is, again, I was at this Tibetan Buddhist center, and the, our whole retreat, I was on a retreat, a 10-day retreat of about 40 students. And our whole retreat was invited to meet with the Dalai Lama. And this was back in the days when you could do that, and you know, 40 people was, it wasn't like 40,000 people, <laughs> which it is now. And so we were asked to write down our questions, whatever we wanted to ask the Dalai Lama, we were asked to write them down in advance. And so I was, I had been, my whole history is a lot of activism in my youth, and um, I guess I'm still in my youth, but anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so I, had, I wrote this question, and it said, it said, is it possible, how do you bring together political and social action with Buddhist practice? And what they did with the questions is they were concerned at the time about what the Chinese, how the Chinese was responding to what the Dalai Lama was saying. So everything had to be vetted. So they took the questions and they rewrote them. And by the time we were there and he got my question, my question was read, is it possible to be a politician who meditates? <laughs> and and I just thought, oh no, that's not what I was asking. But his holiness, in his characteristic ability to sort of cut through everything. Looked, seemed to look directly at me I'm not sure it was but he seemed to look directly at me and he just said three words he said Dharma is service and those words have stayed with me my whole life I don't see a separation between what I do here and what I do out in the world when I'm serving and I like to be really clear that it's oftentimes there's this. I used to live in Berkeley, so there was this whole hierarchy of, of um, if you're only a real activist if you're out there on the front lines, and everybody else if you're a service, if you're doing service, that's not good enough. You know, if you're doing, um, if you're sitting with the dying, that's okay, but really the good work is being an activist. And I find that to be so unhelpful, that there's so many multiple ways of serving on this planet. And that we should go to what we're drawn to and what we love, what we care about. One of my teachers, uh, Joanna Macy, who's a mentor, many of you know, the echo philosopher, Buddhist teacher. She says there, she sees three ways of contributing to the healing of the world. And they're all equally valid. So you may find yourself in one of these categories and being surprised by this. So the first is holding actions. And that's what we tend to think of as sort of traditional activism, going out and protesting and marching and Rosa Parks standing up on the bus and writing letters and lobbying and anything to prevent things from getting a lot worse or to raise consciousness. The second is what she calls the building of alternative institutions. And that's things like the Grameen Bank and alternative currencies and schools, progressive schools that change consciousness. And um, Spirit Rock is an alternative institution in the culture. It's, it's contributing to these, great, these changes in our world. And then the third she calls the changing of hearts and minds. So there's holding actions alternative institutions and work that changes hearts and minds changing values helping people to see things differently, helping people to understand the world in a different way and come to greater places of compassion So I see service very very broadly and I see that As we do this practice, as we do this practice, we become more and more able to serve out in the world because of these very qualities that we're developing on the cushion. So the equanimity that we have makes a huge difference. You sit with your knee pain. You sit with it and you sit with it. And finally, you're just sitting with knee pain. And there isn't any pushing away or trying to get rid of it or trying to make it better or changing. Or You're just sitting there with an even and balanced and clear mind. And think of what that's like for people out in the world who are serving who are facing so much suffering at different times to have equanimity, to have peace in the midst of serving, to keep, to 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 have passion, to not feel like okay if I'm serving from a spiritual place I am um, not passionate. I have to be a zombie who's very calm and equanimous and detached. It's not that. Equanimity is very engaged. It just means a balanced mind, a mind of evenness. So it's engaged and it's intimate with whatever it's engaging with. But it also is not attached to results. And Jack mentioned that last night. Not being attached to the fruits of our actions. One way of cultivating equanimity is to think about our activism or our service or the state of the world in terms of the long view. You know, if you think about trying to solve everything tomorrow, it just can be incredibly difficult and frustrating. But if you think of the 10,000-year perspective, then you can relax a little bit and equanimity can come. So our dear friend, Dr. Arya Ratney, who started the one of the first Buddhist-based development projects in Sri Lanka, after the ceasefire, he created a 500-year peace plan, because he was very visionary, and he had a depth of equanimity. He's an incredible bodhisattva, and he just thought, well, there's been 500 years of colonialism, and, and globalization, and westernization, and oppression, and war, and now I'm going to have 500 years of leading towards peace. It's going to take that long. What a beautiful vision. Now, Bush seems to display this, uh, this great vast equanimity in terms of the long-term view. And this is what was the headline in The, the Onion, the parody newspaper. Bush vows to eliminate U.S. dependence on oil by (laughs) (laughs) 4,920. And here's what it says. President Bush unveiled an aggressive initiative Monday that would make the U.S. free of petroleum dependence by the year 4,920, less than three millennia from now. Our mission is clear, Bush said in a speech delivered at Fort Bragg in North Carolina. We must free ourselves from dependence on fossil fuels within 85 generations. (laughs) A cleaner, safer America is my vision, and it is our great, great, great times 80 great grandchildren who will realize that vision. Bush promised a legislative package that would mandate severe cuts in oil production subsidies and provide new funding for alternative energy research and development. According to the timetable he presented, these bills could be introduced as early as (laughs) 3219, and U.S. energy consumers could start to see radical changes by the early 42nd century. If we don't don't end our dependence on oil by 4920, when will it end? 50, 50, 80? (laughs) By then, it may be too late, Bush said. (laughs) He called on both Democrats and Republicans living 1200 years from now (laughs) to work together to pass the program. It would be a shame if by the 33rd century, these bills will be tied up in committee. I urge the 712th Congress to pass this legislation with minimal partisan gridlock. Anyway. so these qualities of holding the long-term view of equanimity of patience of mindfulness bringing mindfulness into our action out in the world when we're with a person when we're with a person who is ill can we bring that quality of presence that we've been developing here on the cushion when we're if so many of you are teachers can we bring these into the classroom can we How can mindfulness inform our actions so that we can live in a place of, in a sense, availability to ourselves? So that we're available to ourselves and then available to the world. Can we learn to act from bodhicitta and from this love That is being pointed to. Can we act from this love? This is a huge issue around anger and activism. So much activism is fueled by anger. And it's so not sustainable. And so when I work with activists, and a lot of times what I do is I train activists in spiritual principles, and I say, well, there is another way. And they say, yeah, right. If we don't act out of anger, then what's going to motivate me? And the answer is, well, there are many answers, but one answer is love. We want to see the world a better place. And we can act out of that spirit of this vision of the beauty that the world can be. We also can develop this quality of mind that we keep pointing to, that in sometimes, especially in Zen, is called not knowing, the not knowing mind. That we can just sort of do our actions, whatever they are, out in the world, and then abandon the results, and not worry and not know. We can live with the uncertainty. So about, gosh, 1999, I was um, living in in uh, oh I was at, I was in Bodh Gaya, India for a retreat that the Dalai Lama was doing. I, I I was realizing I was talking a lot about the Dalai Lama, but how could you not talk about the Bodhisattva without talking about the Dalai Lama? So. I was in, I was, um, I was doing a, he was doing these large public teachings in Bodh Gaya and thousands and thousands of people attended. So there were probably maybe a thousand people from Europe, America, Australia, and so forth. And then tens of thousands, maybe hundred thousand Tibetan people. So it was this huge, huge experience and um, kind of a Dharma party. It was really, really quite amazing. So, one, I was there with a bunch of friends, and one morning I woke up and um, a friend had just called home and found out that the U.S. had started a bombing campaign against Iraq at that time. So this was 1999. And I heard that, and I just, the first thing that popped into my head was, we need to do a peace vigil. And... um, my friend said, Yeah, yeah, let's do a peace vigil, let's do it. So I spent the whole morning not going to the teachings, but organizing this peace vigil. And I was w- running around looking for a photocopy machine so I could make flyers and looking for candles because I wanted it to be a candlelight vigil. And I just spent this whole day trying to make it happen along with some other friends. I also had them announce it so that the people who were the Westerners would know that there was this peace vigil to, um, um, you know, at the, at the teachings. So the night of the vigil came, and um, it was that night, and we all arrived, and there were maybe 30, 40 people with us, and we, it was going to be done around the Bodhi tree. And so the idea was that we would all kind of march in silence, doing walking meditation with our candles in a silent kind of meditative prayer around the Bodhi tree, and then we would come and gather and, and talk about things. And, and so we got there, and the Bodhi tree, it's this big complex. okay So it's, there's all these temples and gardens and all sorts of things going on, tears, lots of tears. And the Bodhi tree is right down in the center. And I got, we got there, and we poked our head in. And what we saw were about, I don't know, probably 20,000 Tibetan people walking around with candles, walking around on the up like the high part of the tiers so not near the Bodhi tree and I said what are they doing here and my friends we all sort of said oh it must be some kind of Tibetan holiday or something or Tibetan prayer day because there's many many Tibetan prayer days and so we sort of looked at it and we thought oh that's going to be so beautiful we have this Tibetan prayer thing going around as we do our vigil so the 30 of us went down, and we did this beautiful circumambulation, which was just made even better by the presence of these thousands of candles and people walking and chanting and you know, mumbling around us. And we got to the Bodhi tree, and we, we said um, we had one of us did a big netta, and then we did this whole California thing where we talked about our feelings, which a lot of the other people from other nationalities didn't like. But anyway, <laughs> the Americans did. And... Um, and And so we did this in this beautiful meta that um, a friend led, and anyway, at the end, we just all felt really good about what, having done this in the midst of this spiritual practice, that we brought in our convictions and our love for the world. A couple about a week later, I was talking to someone, and she said, "Wow, that protest that, or that vigil that you did, it was very successful." And I said, "Well, yeah, about 30 people, but it felt really good internally." And she goes, "No." I mean the Tibetans. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, those Tibetans, they came for the protest. They came for the vigil. You didn't know that? And I said, no, I thought it was some Tibetan prayer day. And they said, no, my friend writes for the Times of India, and she's the correspondent. She talked to them. The Dalai Lama announced it and told them to go. It was the best protest I never organized. (laughs) And this amazing expression and of sort of you do it and then you let go. You just have no idea what's going to come of it, what's going to come of anything, really. So the bodhisattva, the bodhisattva, this beautiful being of awakening, this being who is to be liberated together with all beings, our practice motivated by this vast vision of awakening. Sometimes we think, "Uh uh-oh, this is too much, this is scary, this is grandiose, how could I ever do something like this? But really, it's not I doing anything. I'm not helping anyone and when we get that contracted sense of, this seems impossible, how could I do something like this? I just remind, when I get it, I just remind myself, it's not about me. It's the bodhisattva vow. It's like this archetypal energy coming through us. One of my friends once said, when he first took on the bodhisattva vow, his first experience was, oh, how beautiful, what an incredible motivation for my practice. And then his second thought was, oh my God, this is impossible, this is huge, I have to save all beings? And then he realized, wait a minute, if I'm taking the bodhisattva vow, they're taking the bodhisattva vow, and he is, and she is, and he is, and she is, and we're all doing it. Oh, it's not that big, that hard, right? Because so many people are doing it. In a sense, it's a community practice. It's a practice that we can share together. So the important thing is, how do we make it our own? How do we find our relationship to the Bodhisattva vow? And some of you may have been listening and say, oh, it sounds good, not for me, that's fine. But for those of you who are interested in it, it can be very, very diverse. It can be, it it can, it's really this great expression of our deepest values, of our practice, of our heart, of our lives. So, for me, what I do is I sit, when I sit in the morning, I do this period of time where, as I said, I do that bodhicitta prayer, and I also say a line from Shanti Deva that's so moving to me. And I say, it's amazing, I think I say it most days, and it still moves me even when I say it. Um, for as long as space exists and sentient beings endure, May I be the living ground of love for all beings. May I be the living ground of love for all beings. In another version we say, may I dispel the misery of the world. It's so beautiful. And just taking that in into our practice... And finding the way to commit to what you love, to deepen your practice—it's a way of deepening. It's like the Tibetans say: it lights a fire under our practice, deepening what you love and what you believe in, bringing in all beings. And it doesn't have to be even Buddhist per se. You know, it's—it's it's so much deeper than that, in a sense, than like sectarian uh, thinking. So I'm going to read you a version of the Bodhisattva vow, and this is by the, the naturalist and poet Diane Ackerman, and who's not a Buddhist? Here's what she says. It's called "School Prayer." "In the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred." But offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, as an architect of peace. In the name of the sun and its mirrors, and the day that embraces it, and the cloud veils drawn over it, and the uttermost night, and the male and the female, and the plants bursting with seed, and the crowning seasons of the firefly and the apple. I will honor all life, wherever and in whatever form it may dwell, on earth my home and in the mansions of the stars. That's a good one. So this is what um, a book called The Bodhisattva Ideal, says, although it's traditional to speak of the bodhisattva vow, the vow is really a set of vows which varies, varies from one bodhisattva to another, reflecting his or her special interests and aptitudes within the wider context of it. If we take the image of light refracted through a glass prism, bodhicitta is like pure white light shining through the prism and the bodhisattvas' vows are like the colors of the rainbow emerging on the other side. Within the spectrum, usually visual to, visible to us, the rainbow only has seven colors. But some kind of meditation involves trying to imagine, trying to see or visualize other colors one has never seen before. We can think of all these prisms as emitting not just the seven colors we know, but hundreds of thousands of wonderful new colors, And similarly, we can imagine bodhicitta shining through the minds and hearts of different bodhisattvas, producing innumerable combinations of vows. So just imagine it. So what I'd like to do is close our eyes. I just want us to access inside ourselves this sense of bodhisattva vow in whatever way it means to you, whatever it means to you. So just feel yourself sitting. Notice your heart, mind, body. Let yourself rest, breathe, and ask yourself the question What are the deepest intentions for my practice? for my life what do I want to commit to and see what comes up without judging keeping in mind this is really a work in progress What are the deepest intentions of my heart? And let that stay with you. And we can remember it and we can work with it. So for as long as space exists and sentient beings endure, may we be the living ground of love for all beings. This talk was given by Diana Winston at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 17, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma.